This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. It's a blessing to be here this morning uh, to worship our God, to study His Word together. Uh, we're going to continue on um, in our series that we've been, we've been studying and examining the story of the Scriptures. And as we've gone through the story of the Bible and looked at these different times, these different ages, these different accounts, we've noticed how the Bible is one connected story that leads us to Christ, that leads us to the cross. And so far we've studied several important, account, several important accounts, and we've seen how they each foreshadow the story of Jesus. But in order to understand that story, we need to see some important details of what happens at the beginning one more time and see these details in Adam and how God wove the thread that leads up to Jesus and how that Jesus is everything that Adam should have been. Um, you know, we looked at, at what happened in the garden. God gave Adam life, so he was given life. Genesis chapter 2, 7 uh, says, The Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So here we see the creation of Adam. He takes the dust of the ground and he breathes into his life. So Adam receives life. We also noticed in, in the creation account how Adam was made in the image of God. He was given charge. He was given a responsibility. In, in verse, uh, Genesis 1, 26-28, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. Uh, and he gave him a charge. The Lord... Uh, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them, and God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So they were given the image and the likeness of God. And I, and I uh, have come to take that to mean that they were created in holiness and they were pure they were righteous before God. They had harmony between this, this holy God and, and holy man. There was harmony. And they were made to represent him and have authority and have rule over all the earth to multiply and to spread more godliness and more holiness and create more beings that would be God's image bearers in this world, uh, to have dominion over all these things and to... Uh, to to bear His glory as, as we live and, and work in this world and subdue it and have dominion over these things. Um, so reproducing and filling the earth, subduing and having dominion gives us that imagery of this kingdom, of this rule that mankind was supposed to have. Now, the source of co the commandments, the source of what is good, the source of what is right cannot come from man. It comes from God Himself. And so He gave law to Adam. In, uh, when he placed him in the garden, he defined everything that was good, and we see in Genesis 2, 8 through 9. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow everything, every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So God is the one who defines what is good and what is good for them to eat and, and what is right. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden was there, and they had free access to that tree. But also there was a tree there the knowledge of good and evil. Now he gave him a commandment in verse 15, and the Lord God took the man uh, and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, 
of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of life, or the tree of knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So Adam has issued this charge, issued this law, uh, to obey and observe God's commandment. And if you recall the study when we talked about Moses and the children of Israel, and we talked about the reason that God gave them law, he says, I set before you this day the choice between life and death. In that I charge you to keep these commandments and follow my ways and be my holy people. God presents to his, his people, uh, humans, the ability to choose between life or death. And so this choice of eating of the tree or not eating of the tree that God gave Adam the freedom to, to, to rightfully choose, uh, that choice represents following life or death. Now, of course, God wants us to remain in life and not partake of what, is, what God has defined as something that is not good. He says, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, up to this point, of course, things were perfect. There was harmony between a holy God and holy man until the day that Adam and Eve were deceived, or Eve was deceived, rather. But Adam failed in his responsibility to choose life, to choose righteousness. And so in Genesis 3, 5 through 6, we read, For God doth know in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So Satan dangles this... Uh, this power before them, and they fall to it. And the woman, uh, when, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. So what we see here is that Adam fails to make the choice to follow life, and instead follows death. And in this act, he is elevating himself to a position that does not belong to him. So Adam, mankind, raises themselves up to be God and seeks to be in the position of God. Now this act brought a terrible consequence and had a far-reaching consequence, and that's summarized uh, very succinctly in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now we're not guilty, as the, as the uh, Catholic doctrine originated this idea of original sin, that we are somehow guilty of eating the fruit. As, as soon as we're born, we're guilty simply by being humans. That's not what the Bible teaches. That is an incorrect doctrine. God does not charge us with the same sin of Adam, yet we are affected by it, uh, for sure. Now we also commit sin, and death has passed upon all of us, and so we're, we're deeply affected by this consequence of Adam's actions and his choice to follow after death. It's something that plagues all of humanity, and there is a curse upon us because of this. Um, and now we're guilty of our own sins that we live in and we commit. And that's what we have to answer for and give account for uh, because of this. Now, what happened when they committed this sin? They broke their holiness. They broke this harmony between a holy God and holy man. And God drove them from the garden, and there was an exile that took place from paradise. God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil, and now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So God was doing them a favor because they could not live forever in this condition of having been corrupted. He says in verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he, from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So God exiles them from this paradise, drives them away from his presence, and now they have restricted their access to the tree of life. They can no longer freely eat of that, 
and live forever, they have surely died, being separated from God and surely died in that they imposed the physical death and separation that comes from that. So two types of separation there that they imposed. Now this, these events set up for us recurring themes that take place over and over again throughout the story of the Bible. Uh, story, uh, uh, stories of God giving people commandments, charging them to be holy, charging them to carry forth the blessing that he has charged humanity to, to be blessed with by multiplying and, and being, having dominion and being his holy people, and the failures of mankind over and over again. We see throughout the stories and the pages of the scriptures the failures of mankind to choose life, to choose what is good, to choose what is right, to follow their God. And, and we see time and time again, because of that sin, mankind is putting themselves in the position of God and, and proclaiming to know, uh, uh, elevating themselves to some status of wisdom, thinking we can define what is good and, and decide to do what we want, elevating ourselves as gods, leading us to sin, leading us to death. And therefore, we are exiled from God and His presence, and we are separated from Him. That happens over and over again throughout the pages of the Scriptures. Now, God, because of His goodness, because of His grace, instituted a rescue plan from the very beginning. When this happened, as soon as this happens, He comes and He brings judgment against the serpent. And in Genesis 3.15, He says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. There's going to be conflict between Satan and humanity. Between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, God is speaking of one specific person when he says, the seed of the woman. There's a specific human being that is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. And this right here becomes the focus of the scriptures and the story of the Bible, where God is bringing this to pass. And there's a continuation of the blessing that God charged to humanity time and time again to carry this forward until this true one would come to defeat the serpent. Now, after the flood takes place, we read about Noah and, and the flood. The name Noah means rest, and Noah did bring his people rest. But after the flood, they come out of the ark, and God reissues that charge of Adam to Noah and his sons. Genesis 9, 1 through 2. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea, into your hand they are delivered." So God gives him this charge, be fruitful and multiply, and then as you read there in Genesis 9, he tells him, uh, by, by, if a man is slain, he will be slain by man because he is made in the image of God. He's reminding them of the responsibility that they have to be God's holy people and to have rule in this world and to multiply uh, exceedingly, to bring forth more image bearers of God. Now, of course, sin continues uh, to run rampant in the world. It, it, continues to grow, and then we get to the point after uh, you know, Noah's three sons and their descendants, we come to the point of Abraham. And Abraham, uh, at first his name is Abram, which means high father, and God changes his name at some point to mean father of many nations. Now before that takes place, he comes and he makes a promise to Abraham that is critical to understanding this, this thread of, of the Redeemer that is coming that God has promised. This is critical to understanding how God carries us out in Jesus. Genesis 12, 2 through 3 says, I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. God is specifically, when he says that to Abraham, he is specifically connecting this to the one person who's going to bring the blessing to all humanity. 
and that is by crushing the head of the serpent. So God knows who he's talking about and knows what he's doing when he issues this promise to Abraham and, this, and enters into this covenant with him. Now, if you noticed, with Adam, he said, you be fruitful and multiply. With Noah, he said, you be fruitful and multiply. But at this point, when we come to Abraham, the language changes. And God now, at this point, doesn't charge Abraham with being fruitful and multiplying, but the language changes, and he says, I will multiply you. I will make you great. I will make a great nation out of you. And so then the story of the Bible shifts to following Abraham and his family and the development of his family, which is the people of Israel, so that we can see how God is bringing about this specific human through their history, through their, through their lineage, through the lineage of Abraham. And so it's connected very, very deeply to this promise that God made to Abraham way back when. That's why the Jewish people were so devoted to being the children of Abraham. That's why they cared so much about their lineage, because it was connected to this promise of, of the Redeemer. Now, God repeats this promise in some form to Abraham in Genesis 13, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. That's when God changes his name to, from high father to father of many nations, because all families were going to be blessed because of him, and he would be a father of many nations. He repeats it in Genesis 18 and Genesis 22. Um, we see when he changes his name, verses 5 through 6, Neither shall thy name be any more called Abram, but thine, I, thy name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee, and I will make, I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. Now this blessing is passed on to Isaac. The name Isaac meaning he will laugh. Or this, as we looked at the story, Isaac is the son of promise that, that brings joy, that brings rejoicing to, to his, his people, his parents. And Genesis 26, 3 through 5, God came and promised this to him. He says, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee, Isaac, and I will bless thee. For unto thee and to thy seed will I give all these countries. I will perform the oath which I swear to Abraham thy father, and I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven. And I will give to thy seed all these countries, and in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge and my commandments and my statutes and my laws. Because Abraham was a faithful man, God issues his promise to the son of promise and says, I will make you great, I will make you innumerable as the stars of heaven, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you and in your seed, he's talking about a specific person, thy seed, he's talking in singular there, as, as Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, uh, in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. So this promise is passed on to Jacob, Isaac's son, and Jacob, his name means supplanter. And we saw how when he's born, uh, he had a twin brother, Esau. Esau was coming out first, but Jacob grabbed onto his heel, um, and he is the heel grabber or the supplanter. Genesis 28, 14, God had come to him at some point in his life and made this promise again and reissues this and carries it forward. Genesis 18, uh, 28, verse 14. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south, all over the, the world. And in thy, in, thee, and in thy seed shall all families of the earth be blessed. God is repeating this promise over and over again. Now in Genesis 35, we see something interesting happening to Jacob. Uh, we studied about this, this transformation that he went through. He left his home as Jacob with just a staff in his hand and nothing to his name. And he comes back as the prince of God, multiplied exceedingly, because God had blessed him and been with him and he endured. 
in Genesis 35, a testimony of his endurance and his, as he struggles with God. In verse 10, it says, And God said to him, Thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall thy name be. And he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. So Jacob wrestles with the angel all night, and it says, You have had power. The name Israel means to rule as God. And God said, You have had power with man and with God, and you have prevailed. It shows us his perseverance, his endurance, his strength in the, in the struggle with God. And, and he emerges as a prince of God. Now, in his life, on his journey to Egypt to go see Joseph once again, God appears to him and says something that is, that is very significant. We read about this in his story in Genesis 46. Israel now, coming near to the end of his life, he takes his journey with all that he had and he comes to Beersheba and offers sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spake unto Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, Here I am. He said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for there will I make of thee a great nation. And I will go down with thee, I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will get myself lost here. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. And I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I shall surely bring thee up again. And Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. So he blesses and charges him, and he says, go down into Egypt. He says, go down into Egypt, and I will bring you out. And he says, there is where I'm going to multiply you, and this promise will come to pass. You're going to start to multiply as the, the seed of heaven. And that's what happens. But they go in with 75, and over this 400-year period, as they're living in oppression and slavery, because, because Egypt becomes a slave uh, owner over them and an oppressor over them, they multiply and they leave Egypt with millions. And Egypt then becomes a symbol of of captivity, a symbol of evil, a symbol of oppression against God's people and slavery, and really a symbol of death. Um, and so here, for the first time in this promise that God has repeated over and over and over again, he told Abraham and Isaac, I will make of thee a great nation. But here he gets very specific and he says, this is where I'm going to make a great nation of you and I'm going to multiply you. That's where it's going to happen. That's, that's significant, and we'll make some connections to that later. But the story shifts focus to the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, and how they grew and how they lived out of coming out, out of Egypt. The promise of Abraham is referenced repeatedly throughout their history. Uh, when the, the people fail, Moses falls before him and intercedes on their behalf, and he asks God, remember your covenant to Abraham. And God's wrath is appeased because he remembers this promise that he made to, to multiply them and to bring the promised seed through them. And so God brings his people out of distress time and time again, and yet the people rebel time and time again. And God drives them from the land, again, that repeating theme of exile, because of sin. And so this part of the Bible, we didn't go into depth through this, these days of their monarchy. We didn't, go, we didn't delve too deep into some of those, those uh, into that sections, but when you look at from the time that they received the law, to the time that Christ came and all that in between, it clearly highlights the struggle between a holy God and a corrupt humanity. 
And all the time, God is promising that he would ultimately protect his people and bring them through this struggle of exile. And so the people of Israel lived in a great hope and a great longing for this salvation that would come. They desperately wanted this peace. They desperately wanted to be right. They desperately wanted to be safe. And you see this beautiful, you see, you see this beautiful song in Zephaniah 3, beginning in verse 14. He says, Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He has cast out thine enemy. The King of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not. And to Zion, let not thine hands be slack. For, for the Lord thy God is in the midst of thee, or for the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. I will gather them that are sorrowful from the solemn assembly who are of thee, to whom the reproach of it was a burden. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict thee, and I will save her that, that halteth, and gather her that was driven out. And I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. And at that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you, for I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth, when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. So the people of Israel lived for and longed for this hope as they lived in slavery, as they lived in oppression, and this song is the song of humanity. We are waiting and longing for the day, and, and all of humanity was groaning together, as Paul said in Romans 8, waiting for this day to be redeemed, when the king would come and vanquish the foes and bring us peace and bring us safety, and all that are driven out and exiled from God would be gathered together once again, and he would sing over us with great praises. In his mightiness, he would save and cast out the enemy. And, and we would become a praise, he says. Humanity would be a praise among all people of the earth when once before they were a curse among, among the, the captives and the captors. This is the hope that they lived in. They eagerly searched and longed for this day to arrive, Peter says in 1 Peter 1. And then finally, finally, after a 400 year period, a year period of, science, of silence, Jesus comes and is born. And I want you to notice the longing that's expressed in this prayer of Simeon. When, when Jesus' parents bring him to the temple to offer the sacrifices that were commanded by the law for a male child, they come and do these sacrifices. And Simeon is there at the temple and he's been waiting. He's been waiting to see the Messiah. And... Uh, it says in Luke 2, 25, it says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The same man was, a ju was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed to him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when, it, and when the parents brought the child, Jesus, to do for him after the custom of the law, then he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, now lettest thou servant depart in peace. For according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. What a blessing that Simeon, Simeon had to hold Christ in his arms 
and to know that he would not die until he seen it, had seen it for himself. Can you imagine getting that kind of, uh, that kind of a blessing and saying, you are not going to die until you've seen Christ yourself. And here he holds him in his arms and says, we've been waiting for this. We've been waiting for this consolation of Israel, this, this fulfillment of the promise of Abraham. We've been waiting for this peace that, that God is going to bring, the salvation that he's bringing, the turning back of our captivity through this seed. This is the one that God had been promised, that had made the promise about. And so Jesus is born into the world. Now Jesus, as he, as he grows up, is faithful and righteous and grows in favor uh, with God and with man. And we fast forward to his baptism, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Recall that we studied about the, in, in the study of Melchizedek and the royal priesthood, we talked about how the high priests and the kings both throughout the history of Israel would be anointed with oil to mark and signify that they were chosen by God to be in this office of king or priest. And so the imagery we find here is of the anointing of Jesus with the Holy Spirit to be both our priest, our high priest, and our king. And so his work begins, and he goes out, and immediately he is declared to be the Son of God, and God is well pleased with him. This holy man, who is perfect, who is righteous, who is the authority of God and, and his, is his image, is led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And what we're seeing here is Satan, again, trying what he tried with the first holy people. Yet this time, he is not victorious. Man prevails over Satan. This man prevails over Satan. Matthew 4, verse 10, 11, And Jesus said to him, Finally, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him. Satan was not successful in causing this man to fall. And so he did everything that Adam should have done. And he fulfills what Adam failed to do and, and did not give in to the wishes of the serpent and seek to exalt himself. Instead, he abased himself. And so Jesus, the perfect man, is exactly everything that Adam should have been and more. We saw that Adam was given life, but that source of life comes from Christ. And Jesus is the one who gives life. Paul makes this contrast and calls him the last Adam. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. God blessed him with life and created him and, and gave him life. The last Adam, Jesus, was made a quickening spirit, a life-giving spirit. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Paul makes this beautiful contrast and calls Jesus the last Adam, and it perfectly, because he perfectly does everything that Adam should have been and accomplishes his role as the image bearer of God. He is the perfect human. And so he is called the last Adam. And he was not just given life. He is a life-giving spirit. Adam was made the image of God and was not perfect, but Jesus is the perfect representation of God in bodily form. In Colossians 2, verse 9, it says, In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All deity dwells in Jesus in His bodily flesh. And He was a representation of God in this earth. When the disciples said, Show us the Father, what did He say? 
Why are you asking to see the Father? You have seen me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because he is the image bearer of God, and God is shown through him uh, because, because he is God in the flesh. Human, uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 to 3, it says that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. The creator is the perfect image of God in bodily form. He was what Adam could not be. And as the image bearer, he receives the same charge that humanity received, to be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion in this world, and to be, uh, be holy. And Jesus fulfills that perfectly. He was multiplied exceedingly. And you might be confused by that because you're thinking, well, Jesus didn't have a wife. Jesus didn't have any kids. Didn't he? Galatians chapter 4, verse 3 through 7. Even so, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, under the, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Jesus, through what he came to do, was multiplied exceedingly and gained many sons and, and allows us to be adopted into the family of God. God makes us sons and God makes us heirs of the great promise of inheritance through Jesus. And, and the picture is of the church is the bride of Christ. And it's producing many children unto the Holy Father. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, this was God's plan and His purpose all along to redeem humanity and for us to be His children. Ephesians 1 for 5, having predestined us, this was predetermined by God to be the plan, unto the adoption of children by Jesus to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. God has willed it to be so from the very beginning that we should be His children and walk in His image and walk in His holiness and be fruitful and multiply and do all the things that, that God wants us to do, being holy as He is holy. It's His plan all along. So let's talk about how and when Jesus was able to adopt us as children. You remember what we talked about in Genesis 46 with uh, Jacob, with Israel? He's going to Egypt, and God says, Don't be afraid. I will go down with you. There I will multiply you, and I'm coming out with you. And I will bring you up out of that place. That is a picture of Christ and the resurrection. That is a picture of the death and resurrection of Christ. Egypt is a symbol of death and of bondage. It's a, it's a picture of Hades. A place that we're exiled to that we don't belong. It is a place of, it is a symbol of the embarrassment of sin and death that oppresses and, and, and enslaves God's people. And just as Israel would go down into Egypt and be multiplied there and grow into this great nation and raised up from the bondage of slavery, from, as slaves raised up to the position of victorious kingdom of priests, so Christ would die to sanctify all the faithful, go down into Hades under the slavery of death to be raised up victorious, the victorious king and high priest, and to lead his royal priesthood out of sin and death. And in this act, God there multiplied him he multiplied him to give him power and authority over life and death. 
and he made him a great nation of the faithful children of God. And that's how he is able to adopt us into his family. And he gives us the adoption of sons through his resurrection. Jesus talked about the resurrection being central to gathering all people. We saw that imagery in the prophecies of kings. There would be a king. Shiloh would come and to him would the gathering of the people be. This was something that everybody waited for and Jesus said was going to happen uh, to him. He says in John 10, 15, 15, As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep, he's talking about the sheep of the house of Israel, because that's who he came to save. But he says there's other sheep, what I, which I have, which are not of this fold. He's talking about the Gentiles, all the non-Jews, so that all families of the earth would be blessed, as God promised Abraham. He says they are not of this fold, them also must I bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. He's going to gather them all up together into one. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it up again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment I received of my Father. God, in, in essence, saying the same thing to Jesus, don't be afraid to go down in there. I will go down with you, and I will bring you up through His power. He would bring up Jesus Christ from death. And this great king goes down into Egypt and gathers up the sorrowful from the ends of the earth, as they sang in Zephaniah. He's gathered all the nations to himself to be the faithful children of God, to be his royal kingdom of priests. Hebrews 5, 8-9, Though Jesus was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all that obey him. All the faithful people that have ever lived and that ever will live that are obedient to God are made part of His family. And He redeemed every soul that's, that, that uh, is obedient to God and they're His children through Christ. And this is the new birth that we participate in today. It's the message that we preach today of baptism into Christ so that people can be born again because they're being born as children of God and Jesus is being multiplied exceedingly. 1 Peter 1, 22-23 seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, not of human flesh and corruption, but of incorruptible by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. We are born by that, that quickening Spirit, that life-giving Spirit, and born into God's family. And again, new souls are being added to the family of God. Uh, as it says in Ephesians, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And, and we become His sons, the sons of God, the daughters of God, and become His family. And Jesus fulfills this perfectly. Not only does He fulfill the charge to be multiplied, He fulfills the, pro the, the charge of humanity to have all dominion, and He does it perfectly. Colossians 1, 15-18, who is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him, by Jesus. All things were created by Jesus and for Jesus, and He is before all things, and by Him all things consist, and He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in all things He might have the preeminence. He rules perfectly and keeps the charge perfectly and subdues all things to himself. The perfect image of God, the invisible God. Um, 
Adam was charged to do this and he failed and Jesus did not. Adam was simply given commandments and given law. Jesus is the one who gives law. He is the lawgiver. John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Jesus will abide with you, and you can have the presence of God in your life if you keep his commandments. He's the one that gives us the commandments to follow. Not like Adam, who simply received law to follow. Jesus issues the law. Adam exalted himself, a lowly human man exalts himself to be in the position of God, but in Jesus we see, we see God, we see the creator of all things, lower himself to become man. Philippians chapter 2, 6-8. through eight. It says, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. It was necessary for Jesus to come into this world, but he humbles himself. He does not exalt himself. He lowers himself to the position of man. And, and even that, a lowly man, a form of a servant. He didn't come as some great mighty king. He didn't come with great pomp. He didn't come with great power. He came born in a manger and lived as a servant and traveled around had no place to live. Uh, that's who Jesus came to be, not exalt himself as, as God, but he lowered himself and humbled himself to the lowest possible point, even to the point of death. But this was necessary. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, um, it's a lengthy reading, but we'll, we'll, we'll cut through there uh, really quickly. Um, this is talking to us about the prophecies that David made about about man and, and how low of a state he was and who is, this, who is man that thou art mindful of and the son of man that you visit him. You made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of thy hands. He's talking about the dominion that he gave mankind, but he's specifically talking about Christ. Uh, thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. That's imagery again of this, this seed of the woman that would come and crush the head of the serpent. It's putting all things under his feet. For in that he put all things in subjection under him, he left nothing that was not under him. But now, we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Mankind was not able to do this, but Jesus was able to have all things under him. Jesus came for the suffering of death. He was crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he would taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise to thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. These are quoting Old Testament scripture after Old Testament scripture to prove that this is the one. And what did Jesus do? For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also likewise himself took part of the same. And it was necessary because that through death he would destroy him that had power over death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he came and he took on him the seed of Abraham. He came as a human life 
to bring many sons to glory and lead us out of this place and lead us out of bondage. So Jesus had to die in order to break the power of Satan and bring us up out of this place. Adam, because of his sin, bring, brought sin unto death, but Jesus, because of his obedience, brings obedience unto life. 1 Corinthians 15, 22-22, But now Christ is risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. He was the first person to, to be raised from the dead, to never die again. He was the firstborn from that death. For since by man came death, by man, the human life that God promised, Genesis 3.15, came also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus' obedience brings us life. And lastly, the thing I want to talk about is how Adam, because of his sin, was driven from the garden and lost us access to the tree of life, and he exiles us from the presence of God and makes us separate from him. But Jesus comes to reconcile us and deliver us and turn back our captivity. He reconciles us to God by removing the separation that causes sin in the first place. Galatians chapter 1, 19, For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, And by him I say, whether they be things in earth or in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet hath he now reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Do you see how Jesus turns back our captivity? Do you see how he turns back our oppression? He undoes the enemy. He undoes sin that is in our life. And he reconciles us to God. He brings us back together with God. He removes the separation uh, of sin. Um, and He delivers us from the separation of death. Romans chapter 8, 11. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead will also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Don't think that it just stops with the removal of sin and we're reconciled to God. Jesus is going to, to perfect our bodies give us holiness, and make us complete once again, remove the corruption. Because at the end, when He returns and we're raised up, we're going to receive, these bodies are going to be um, changed. We're going to receive a new type of body that comes and grows from this one. And, and it's going to be perfect. And just the same way Jesus was raised up from the dead, our physical bodies are going to be raised up from the dead. And, and the captivity that we suffered going down into Hades, being separated in a place that we don't belong, will be turned back. And we will never suffer that bondage ever again. We'll never suffer that oppression of sin ever again. And this is what will happen at the end. 1 Corinthians 15, 23. But every man in his own order. Jesus came to do it first. He's the first fruits. And afterwards, those that are, those that are Christ when he returns. Then comes the end, when he, he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God. Remember, this king gathers all nations. Till Shiloh come, and the, to him shall the gathering of the people be. He gathers these two folds, the Jew and the Gentiles. He says they shall be one flock and one shepherd, and he comes to gather them all, and he delivers them up to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Again, imagery of the, the, the seed of the woman crushing the serpent. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. 
and he will undo. He will undo all of our problems. This story of the Bible builds up and leads us to this final event where Jesus, the new Adam, the seed of the woman, the one that would bring rest to his people as a father of many nations, the son of promise that makes us to laugh and to rejoice, the one that rules as the prince of God, the anointed king and high priest. This one will crush the head of the serpent and rescue everyone that has lived in the oppression, uh, lived in the oppression that we've had to suffer because of sin and the slavery that we've had to endure because of Adam's sin. And he gathers us up to live a new life where we will finally be free. We will finally be restored and whole. And we will finally know what it's like to truly be everything we were ever created to be. God's holy kingdom of priests. Jesus is everything that Adam should have been. He wasn't just made a living soul. He's the quickening spirit. He's not just God's image. He's the perfect image of God. He was not just fruitful and multiplied. He was fruitful and multiplied exceedingly and, and gained many sons and brought, brought them into glory. He, Adam was charged to have dominion, but Jesus has perfect dominion over all things in heaven and earth. Adam was simply given commandments to follow. Jesus is the one who issues commandments for us to follow. He's the lawgiver. Adam exalted himself to become God. Jesus lowered himself to become man. So that, because of Adam's sin unto death, he could bring obedience to life and, and suffer death to raise us up. And Adam exiled us from paradise, but Jesus invites us and calls us to come back into paradise because there, when Christ comes and he takes us home, to the place where we truly belong and rescues us from this oppression, he will invite us to the midst of the paradise. In Revelation 2, verse 7, he says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Jesus invites us back into the garden, returns us to the place where we belong in the presence of God, and calls us to eat and gives us a right again to eat of the tree of life that is there in the midst of God's paradise. What, a, what an incredible and amazing story we get to be a part of. And, and this is why it's so important for us to live in righteousness and live in holiness. We've got one more study to study um, after this, and, and we'll talk about in, in more detail that charge for us to be God's holy people, His royal priesthood, and, and how, what that means and how we should carry that out in this world. But if you're a Christian this morning and, and you are struggling with sin, you're giving yourself, just like the Israelites constantly looked back to Egypt and wanted to go back into slavery, if you're living in sin, you're, you're choosing to be a slave. You're choosing to be oppressed when you don't have to be. The great king has come. Jesus is the perfect image of God, and he will free you and has freed you. If you're in Christ, you've been made free. Don't let yourself go back into, those, into that slavery. You have the choice to choose life or death. Won't you choose life? Give up those sins, repent, turn to God, and, and be, follow, follow him the way he asks us to do.
Jesus says if you love him, if you really love him, you will keep his commandments. And he commands us to live as his holy people. Don't let sin be your undoing. After all the work that Jesus has done for you, if you, if you need help, your family, the family of Christ, the, the family that you're a part of, wants to help and pray with you and lift you up and, and uh, do whatever we can to encourage you. And God will provide the healing and the, the forgiveness that you need. He awaits for you to do that. And, and if there's any that are not members of the body of Christ, of course, don't you want to be a part of this wonderful, amazing story? Don't you want to be part of the victory of the great king that crushes the head of the serpent? He's won us the victory through his death. And you can have that if you're baptized into his, into his death and raised up with him in the power of the resurrection to live life anew. We invite anyone to come that may have a need as we stand and sing this song. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.